from us. Phone lines going into the court actually run through our building. We're the closest commercial, I mean, we're literally across the street. The justices have to drive by our building when they go into the parking lot of Supreme Court every day. Supreme Court parking lot for the staff is behind our offices. It's a good location. <laughs> My father always said, location, 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 and it, was, it is the location. In 1990, I had another controversial case. It was the times of Operation Rescue. Some of you are old enough to remember that. It was the abortion protest. The abortion protesters had the audacity and the nerve to actually either engage in prayer vigils in front of abortion clinics or actually to blockade the entrance to those clinics. And there was a lot of lawsuits. And I was going coast to coast trying cases. I had a test case out of Atlanta. Uh, there was an injunction that was issued that prohibited prayer on a public sidewalk, and your pastor and my wife and two others were my clients as we went down and tested that injunction. You may have seen that video. We show that from time to time. It was a tad intense. Uh, that case went up to the Supreme Court of the United States, actually, on an emergency stay, which we'd won, and they allowed the prayer to take place. But I'll tell you an interesting story, not a story I talk about a lot. It was the days of the president was George H.W. Bush. Uh, the Solicitor General of the United States was Kenneth Starr, who later became, of course, the prosecutor in the, in the uh, investigation of President Clinton. And, uh, but I was there doing a religious liberty case and doing pro-life work, and we had this case out of Wichita, Kansas, and it was a huge blockade. I mean, I'm talking about tens of thousands of Christians showed up from around the world because the doctor involved in this particular practice was engaged in late-term abortions, third trimester eighth, ninth, literally to the time of delivery. And there were these blockades, and they were massive. And I got a call, and my clients were not easy to manage. Uh, when you're representing people that um, have a conviction like this, uh, you're their lawyer, you're not their conscience. And I actually had to deal with that in court. I had a federal judge order me. He said, I want you to turn around, Mr. Secular, and I want you to tell your clients to not violate my order. Now, I'm an officer of the court, but I am their lawyer. I said, well, you, Your Honor, I'm going to tell them what your order says. And I'm going to tell them that if they violate your order, there's consequences. And those consequences could include jail. But I'm not their conscience, I'm their lawyer. So I don't tell them what to do. And uh, he wasn't too happy with that. And that night, I was asked to do 2020. And the host of it was Barbara Walters. I'm dating myself a little bit, huh? It was 104 degrees in Wichita, Kansas. I was supposed to go to the studio, but on the way there, they decided that they would have me stationed in front of the abortion clinic. And there were three guests, Lawrence Tribe from Harvard University and a surprise guest, but they wouldn't tell me who it was until we were on air, and I figured it was the doctor performing the abortions. I was wrong. It was the federal court judge. And he and I debated this with Lawrence Tribe on air for about 20 minutes, and then the next day I was back before him. There was only one problem. He's a judge, not the cheerleader for the other side. So that's when my Brooklyn kind of kicks in. Now, I did live in Atlanta from the time I was 16 years old. You could not tell that from the voice. But my, my New York kicked in, and I asked the judge, I told him I wanted to see him in chambers. I didn't want to do this in open court. So I 
went to his chambers, and he was sitting behind his desk. He had his feet up on the desk, and he jumps up. He gives me this giant bear hug, a federal court judge. He goes, Seculo, we made history last night. We did. And I said, Your Honor, I'm going to have to ask you to recuse yourself. And he was not a happy judge. <laughs> you know that parable? I'm going to talk about this at the end of my little talk. That parable of the unjust judge? I met him. He was not happy. And uh, he said, well, I'm not going to do that. So I had to walk upstairs, which was the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. They ordered his removal. He still wasn't going to go. They, he took it up to the Supreme Court of the United States. They ordered his removal. Finally, he was removed as a judge. He wrote me a note later saying it was because I had to get admitted in another case, same client, now in New York, and this judge, Judge Patrick Kelly in Wichita, received a call from Judge Robert Ward in New York to say, Seculo's asking for admission into my courtroom. What do you think? He said, well, he's a very good lawyer. Be careful. <laughs> and he wrote me a note years later and said, it was my pleasure having you in this courtroom. Having said that, I wish you no luck at all. But I got another call that day. We had these huge blockades planned, and I got a call from the Deputy Solicitor General of the United States. And he said to me, he said, look, the United States is about to file a brief on your behalf. Now, this is the President of the United States, Solicitor General, filing a brief on behalf of these Operation Rescue protesters. This is a big deal. He said, one condition, try to have a day where they're doing prayer vigils, not blockades. Talk to the client. First, they were resistant. Then I said, it's the United States. By the way, that uh, Deputy Solicitor General of the United States, you may know who he is now. It's John Roberts, Chief Justice of the United States. Yeah, God is in control of all these things. And if you would have told me then, and we developed a, a, a friendship 20, over 20 years ago, and when President Bush asked me to help on the judicial appointments and I was sitting in the Oval Office of the Supreme Court of the United States, we talk about humbling experience, for the grandson of the fruit peddler, walking through the White House, through the East Room, into the Oval Office, and have the President of the United States talk about Supreme Court judges and then say, my nominee is going to be John Roberts. And I'm thinking, John Roberts, who I've known for 20 years, is going to be the Chief Justice of the United States. Pretty awesome God. But I want to take it fast forward, because those were all the easy cases. Let me tell you about the hard cases. I just got the call, the email on the hard case, about 45 minutes ago. When I was in your pastor's office, I was uh, having to respond. While that great music was going on, I had to type a message on my Blackberry. There's a case we have which you may have heard of. It's made international news. 32-year-old pastor in Iran. His crime, proclamation of the gospel. It's apostate, which is interesting because he actually was never Muslim. They assumed he was Muslim. He wasn't. Never has been. Christian, 32 years old, 33 now, he's just had his birthday. Two little kids, convicted of apostasy in the Iranian Supreme Court, death by hanging. We uh, got involved in that case. Now, they arrested his lawyer tonight, who's Muslim, by the way, uh, human rights lawyer. And we have developed an international outcry on this. And uh, my son Logan and Will Haynes are here, and they work a lot on this on radio and TV and also with the Internet. We started this Tweet for Youssef campaign. I don't know if any of you are, are on that. But there are 1.5 million people get that tweet. I think now it's 1.9 million. 
with uh, Brazil. Almost two million people a day get an update on this case. We had to work with the State Department. State Department under President Obama. But I will tell you this, Hillary Clinton, not making political statements, has been phenomenal on this issue. Because when it comes to these issues, these aren't political issues. These are fundamental human rights. Do we believe as a people that liberty is a God-given right? If we do, it's not limited to America. God doesn't have favorites in that regard. So we've got this case. And, you know, saying you're going to get justice out of the Iranian Supreme Court is nothing I could tell you. But I will tell you this. He's alive. This pastor's alive because the world is talking about this. We're dealing with governments all over the world. The Germans, Spanish, Spain, Germany, Brazil, France, Saudi Arabia. It's embarrassing to them. That's what's going on. Big case. Let me tell you another big case, and I'm going to tell you this is where God's hand moves in ways you cannot explain. Now, I was born and raised in a Jewish household. Now, I grew up during the Jesus movement. I'm really dating myself. The 1960s and early 70s. And I was on campus at a Southern Baptist College, if you could imagine that, from Brooklyn, New York. I had moved when I was 16, graduated high school early because we had a different academic year. So I was 17 and went to a community college for a semester and then went to Mercer University in Atlanta in the 1960s, 1973 then. And the Jesus movement was in full tilt, for those of you that are 55 and over, you'll remember that. And it was all over the Mercer campus. And I had a professor at Mercer. At Mercer today, you don't think of it as a conservative college. You don't think of it as a really Christian, you know, Christian in name maybe, but not in function. But I will tell you, in the 1960s and 70s, a very different place. At least that campus was. And I had this, you had to take Old Testament and New Testament. So I figured, you know what? 18 years old, I'll take a course in New Testament. I have no idea. I've never read it. Had never really any urge to read it. But I thought I was an Old Testament expert because I was bar mitzvah at 13 and hadn't looked at the Old Testament since then. So I took this course in New Testament. I had this professor, Dr. Gehring. He was a Southern Baptist pastor, but he was also a teacher, professor at, Reed, at um, Mercer. And he decided that we'd have to do uh, Old Testament, New Testament comparisons. So he, he assigned the topics, and he assigned me the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. <laughs> Who would believe our report? That's how it starts. And it's, of course, the suffering servant. So I had read all the Old Testament commentaries on this and read the New Testament fulfillments of this, and intellectually, it kind of just started making sense to me. Now, you know, I wasn't in a particularly religious family, and we celebrated all the Jewish holidays, but I was like Jewish out of central casting. I mean, I still am out of central casting in that regard. So a group came to a church, and a friend of mine named Pam wanted me to go hear him. It's called the Liberated Wailing Wall. It was this music group from Jews for Jesus, which to me, by the way, Jews for Jesus sounded like vegetarians for meat. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I didn't get it, but okay, whatever. That's what I said. I'll go. And, uh, and I went to this presentation of the gospel, and at the end of the presentation, one of the uh, 
guys that were leading the singing group, Stuart Downman, friend of mine to this day, gave an invitation. And I'm telling you, as clear as I'm talking to you, it all made sense. Not just intellectually, because intellectually it was kind of making sense. I was a yellow pad kind of guy, those of you that remember yellow pads, legal pads. And um, so I was making all my notes during my college course, but it really, God really moved on my heart. And I walked down that aisle. I'll never forget what that, we said the prayer, we prayed, and then this woman who came up who had a large ministry to Jewish people in Atlanta, because this was, I mean, there were more Jewish people that came to Christ in the 60s and 70s in the United States than any time in history. I'm talking about including Jesus Day from what we can gather from census and those kind of things. I mean, it was that big of a movement. If you look at every large Jewish ministry, outreach, the people that are running those now are basically folks that are my age. And they were all, they all came to faith. It's about a five, it was about a five-year period. I mean, it still happens today in big numbers, but it was, something was going on very, very much. And, uh, but this woman said, now listen, don't tell your parents. Now, I was living at home. Mercer was the closest college. The reason I went to, it was then, by the way, it wasn't even Mercer yet. The first semester I went there, it was Atlanta Baptist College. Later became Mercer. I went there because, I mean, I came from a working class family. My, father was, my grandfather was a fruit peddler. My father was a retailer, and I had to work and go to college. I couldn't just go to college. So it was the closest college to my house that was close enough to Richway, which was the department store which I worked, the predecessor to Target. And it was close, so I could do everything within about a five-mile radius. And um, the woman said, don't tell your parents. So I said, oh, you know, Pam and I went to a Wendy's. I remember the restaurants. <laughs> we went to a Wendy's, and uh, we talked about it for a while, and I decided to go home and not tell my parents. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, I felt pretty guilty, because my father asked me when I came in, it was about midnight, where were you? And I didn't tell the truth. So about 2 o'clock in the morning, I you know, knock on the door to my parents' bedroom, and I tell my father I need to speak to him. Now, whatever he was thinking I was going to tell him, an 18-year-old at 2 o'clock in the morning, I think he was relieved. <laughs> Those of you that have had teenagers. And we sat at the kitchen table. I'll, I'll never forget this. And that was kind of the family meeting room. And I said, Dad, I have decided. I remember this like it was yesterday. It was a long time ago. I said, Dad, I have decided that Jesus is the Messiah. And here's what his response was. You've decided? Like, who are you to decide this? <laughs> he said, we'll talk about it in the morning. And that morning conversation did not come for five years. Never hostile. Bill and Reddin know my, my father and knew my mother. I mean, it was never hostile. In fact, that very first Supreme Court case I had was Jews for Jesus. And my parents were in the front row. My mother wore a Statue of Liberty pin as large as that piano. I mean, it's the truth. And um, we didn't have that conversation for a long time. Eventually, my mother came to faith uh, before she passed. And, um, but they came to all my Supreme Court arguments. Even the ones that they probably didn't agree with politically, they were proud of their son. I look at that and I say, you know, what is a kid born in Brooklyn, New York, to a working class family, on a first-name basis with the Chief Justice of the United States. And I'm saying again, this is not to boast. This is, you cannot orchestrate this. So when I, you know, when I face difficult situations, and we face a lot of them, 
I understand God's sovereignty. I understand God's grace. Because I, I could not have put on a map, this is what I'm going to do, and I will argue these cases at the Supreme Court. So I told you about Pastor Nardar Khani. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty well known in the, what they call the Jewish Christian or Messianic Jewish community, and I was asked to come to Israel a number of years back on an issue that was um, brewing in the news. There was a time back uh, right after 9-11 that the travel warning to Israel was more, was at a heightened level, more so than Syria. The State Department said it was more dangerous to go to Jerusalem than it was to go to Damascus. And the Israeli government was really upset about that because tourism is how they survive. And I got a call from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Tourism. They said, you know, you know the president. <laughs> it was just like a joke. I mean, you know the president. I'm on a committee of four lawyers, but I don't, I don't call the president up and say, can I have a meeting with you, Mr. President? They said, well, we want to talk to you. They, t- they, they sat me down at the Willard Hotel, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Tourism, Director General of the Ministry of Tourism. If you're with the president, you need to tell him to remove this warning and reduce it. I said, well, I'm actually at a meeting at the White House uh, this afternoon. I don't expect this is going to come up, and I don't bring things up to the President of the United States, but I will, you know, see what I can do, which was basically my way of being polite. But it was interesting. Here, Jewish Christian, this was high risk for them, and this is God. I'm in a meeting with the President, six people in the room, talking about Supreme Court nominees, way before there was a vacancy. This was the early days when President Bush was in there. Meeting's over. I had about, I've probably been there about five or six times already. Never had this happen. Never had it happen since. The end of the meeting, the President of the United States looks at me and says, Jay, is there something else you need to tell me? <laughs> I said, yes. And I explained the travel warning. He said, well, I thought we've reduced that. I said, no, sir. And I said, you're getting a letter that's co-signed by the National Association of Evangelicals, the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and the American Jewish Congress, asking this to be reduced. He says, you get me that letter. And I got that letter later that day, got it over to the White House. And about, that was about 5 o'clock at night. At about 10 o'clock at night, which is 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock in the morning, Israel's time, I get a phone call from the Prime Minister of Israel's office. Now here I am, the Jew for Jesus, getting a call from then Ariel Sharon's office to thank me, which I didn't even know what he was thanking me for yet, but evidently on CNN International, they were running a crawl that says White House reduces travel restriction to Israel, and they were you know, giving me the credit for it, which was just purely God in the right orchestration of events. I didn't think a lot about that afterwards until years later. Years later. I'm in a meeting in Jerusalem, the Prime Minister's office. And there's a big issue going on. Palestinian Authority had filed a claim at the International Criminal Court in The Hague against Israeli soldiers for the war in Gaza in 2009. And they were trying to charge the Israeli soldiers with war crimes. While it was Hamas that was lobbing rockets into Israel, they were, Israel was being charged with war crimes. I'm in the Prime Minister's office, Foreign Minister's office. I've got this great picture in, in my office that the photographer caught. Where the, and I didn't know what the meeting was for. And the deputy foreign minister of the state of Israel, is a friend of mine, leans over to me and whispers to me that you're going to be asked to represent Israel at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. And they had this, the photographer caught the photo of him whispering to me and me having my hand over my 
um, mouth, and, and then they asked me to do it. And um, I said, well, you know, I am honored to do it. And our donors and members of the ACLJ get it. They'll understand it. But I said, you know, the press is going to have a field day with it. I'm talking about the Israeli press, Jews for Jesus lawyer representing Israeli government. They said, just go do it. Little did I know that before the meeting even took place, they already leaked to the Israeli press. Headline in the Jerusalem Post was, Israel uses Jews for Jesus lawyer. They already orchestrated this. I did the case, was asked to speak in front of the um, American Jewish Committee, American Jewish Congress, and the Reform Conference of Rabbis to their major donor conference. Now, I'm talking about major donors. These are people that gave a million dollars to these various organizations. The rabbi said, now listen, we want you to discuss all these issues. We don't want you to proselytize. And I said to Rabbi Saperstein, I said, I am not going to do that. I mean, I'm, that, I'm not going to force my, my view on an inappropriate audience. Now, I said, if somebody asks me, you know, outside or something, I'm obviously going to talk about it, but it's your venue. I understand the rules. It's called understanding etiquette. That day, Front page in the New York Times. There's this whole testimonial profile on me because of the cases, the Israel cases and others. So I do my presentation on the case and do this debate on church state separation, and it's time for question and answer. And these folks are in Washington, D.C., but they're all from New York, and what paper do they read? Like the Bible, the New York Times. And there I was on the front page of it. Guy stands up in the back, says, I've got a question. How did a kid born in Brooklyn, New York, end up believing in Jesus? I turned to Rabbi Saperstein. I said, I, I said, well, I told you, Rabbi, that I was not going to get into that. People started booing. So David Saperstein said, answer the question. Went on for about three hours. I want to give you another story. I'm doing this, again, I, I want to show you how God moves in these things. Because to me, all of this is, all these platforms, and I don't care if it's Fox News or CNN, or the Supreme Court of the United States. It's God has allowed me the high privilege and honor to stand for truth, but to proclaim his word in in ways I never would thought I'd have the opportunity to. For instance, big issue in the country, same-sex marriage, huge. Big debate we had at William & Mary Law School, and I was there to participate. And we had this nice dinner before, it was the Supreme Court preview, and this was the discussion, and the lawyer that has led the charge, who's now currently the head of the EEOC, President Obama, led the charge on same-sex marriage, was there at the table at dinner, and we're having all the New York Times, all the reporters are there, from the, from the LA Times to the New York Times, we're all there, we're having this nice dinner at William and Mary, and um, Kai Feldblum, is her name, she said, Jay, there's something I've wanted to ask you for a long time, and I guarantee you, if I would have asked Everybody at that table, there was about 10 of us at that table, they would have thought it would have been something about church-state relations or something else. She goes, I don't get it. You and I were born in the same hospital, which is true. My mommy's hospital in New York. If you were born in Brooklyn, you were born in my mommy's. Same year, 1956. Lived one exit apart in Long Island. I was exit 40, she was exit 41. And all these reporters are there, and she says, I've got one question to ask you. I've wanted to ask you this for a decade. How did you end up believing in Jesus? And that's when, again, I realized what this is all about. You know, it's really not about the Supreme Court of the United States. 
it's really not about The Hague in the International Criminal Court. It's really about an avenue to proclaim the gospel of truth to a world that desperately needs it. And I had an honest, long discussion with the leader of the gay and lesbian marriage movement who wanted to know about Jesus. And um, what I've learned over the years is I don't make the other side the enemy. Never. I tell my law students when they graduate, I give them the same speech, I've given it to them for 20 years. They're not the enemy. Because one day, you're going to be sitting at a table and somebody's going to ask you a question. And it's not going to be about church-state relations. And it's not going to be about contract law. It's going to be about Jesus. And your testimony can have a big impact on people. Now, that doesn't mean I don't get plenty of slings and arrows. Trust me. They come. You have to be prepared for that. That's part of the deal. And that's where you've got to, you know, God's grace is sufficient. That's the deal. And that's how I respond to it. But the reality is, everything we point to points back to the same thing. And that doesn't matter if it's the Supreme Court of the United States or if it's the International Criminal Court in The Hague. It's all the same thing. It's about Jesus. So all these issues are important, whether it's life or marriage or whatever it might be, or the proclamation of the gospel, all important. One of those kids handing out those gospel tracts. But at the end of the day, don't make them the enemy because it's about Jesus. You know, that pastor in Iran could save his life very easily because under Sharia law, Islamic law, if he recants his faith, he's set free. So they asked him, the first trial, you will, can't, you will recant, not will you, you will recant your belief in Jesus and we will set you free. His response, I cannot. Next time they said, if you will simply acknowledge, you don't have to recant your belief in Jesus as a Messiah, but if you will simply acknowledge Muhammad as the messenger of God, you will be released. And he said, I cannot. This last time, they said, simply say, because the international pressure's been so high on Iran, simply say that Muslims have a path towards heaven and we will set you free. And we will, you could live with your children and your wife. And we're not even gonna close your church and he said, I cannot. Now, I don't know about you or me, even, what I would do in that situation. I hope I would do the same thing. I pray I would do the same thing. But arguing, I told you in the beginning, arguing the Supreme Court of the United States, that's easy. Being faced with death for your faith, that's hard. We don't have religious persecution in the United States of America. We don't. We have acts of discrimination, Lack of tolerance. Everybody talks about tolerance, but nobody's very tolerant of our views. But we don't have persecution. You're not, be you're not being threatened with death because of our beliefs. Pastor Nardacani said, I cannot. You know, I'm going to close with this. There was a woman that wanted justice, according to Luke 18 parable of the unjust judge. 
She wanted justice so badly that she was willing to go to the house of a judge and ask for justice. And she knocked on that door and said, I want justice. But the judge didn't fear God. He didn't fear man. He didn't fear this lady. And she kept knocking because she could not not knock. Now, understand something. This is the Middle East, Jewish woman. I grew up in this household. Trust me. That woman kept knocking. And that judge didn't fear God. He didn't fear man. That woman was driving him crazy. And he opens the door, and she gets justice. And what does Jesus say? How much more will our Father do for us if we continue to petition him? So no matter what the issue we face here in the United States, around the globe, we have to know who's in control of the universe, the sovereign king, Jesus the Messiah. As long as we keep our focus on that, there's no case that's too difficult, no issue too hard, no judge too stubborn that we can't persevere. My prayer for you in this new beautiful facility is that you continue engaging the word, learning the word from your pastor, and then proclaiming that truth to your county, to your state, and to a world that desperately needs to hear it. It's been my pleasure being with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jay. It's a, um, it's a strange world in which we live in, in so many ways. But the truth is, our call is to take the message of Christ everywhere we go. I want you to hear Jay because I want you to hear how he can be taken into the courtrooms and, and places that you and I will never go, quite honestly. But we go places just as significant and just as important, whether it's in a classroom or in a, in a business or wherever God takes us. Our call, our responsibility, our, our mission is to speak the truth of God in hostile places. To be faithful to share what God has given and what God has done in our lives and what his word says and to take that and be faithful in doing it. We, uh, we're going to talk a lot about truth this week, continuing. Al started this morning, Jay continued it. Tomorrow night, Jarvis Williams will be speaking on the truth of God's love. Uh, Tuesday night, Tom Nettles on the truth of God's grace. And Wednesday night on the truth of God's providence, Dr. Bruce Ware. You don't want to miss those. They're going to be instructional. They're going to be inspirational. They're going to be growth enhancing. Scott has chosen tonight a song for us to close with that is one of my favorite hymns just because it, it, really, it really glorifies the the greatness of God. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. Is that what we're doing? Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. 
All of a sudden, it didn't sound right, so I'm saying how much <laughs> I like it. Uh, it's a tremendous hymn. The God we serve is immortal, he's invisible, and he's wise beyond anything we can ever imagine. And he has called us to be his voices in our culture and in our world. Let's stand together. Let's sing to the, together this unto the Lord as Scott comes and leads us. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, enlightened, accessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, no wanting nor wasting, thou rollest in might. Thy justice like mountains, thy soaring above, thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. Us to both great and small, in life, life thou livest, the life of all. We bosom and flourish as leaves on the tree, and wither and perish, but not changeth. What a great hymn. We're glad you're here, especially if you're a guest tonight. I really didn't get a chance to, or I did not take the chance to say welcome to you, especially at the first of the service, but we are glad that you've come to share in this time with us this evening. Please come back. It's going to be a great week as we continue just filling this place with the truth of God. Scott Gilbert's going to come and lead us in our benediction, and then we'll be out in the foyer, and we'll fellowship a bit together. So. Let's pray together. Our God, we are thankful that you have allowed us this time to be together. Father, we are especially thankful for your truth. God, we thank you that you have granted us your truth in your word, God, that we can read it, that we can know it. God, our prayer is that you will sanctify us in the truth, as your word says. God, as we go, pray that we will be faithful to proclaim your truth. God, you have given each of us venues in which we may proclaim your truth, whether it's at home, in our businesses, class, wherever it is that you have chosen to place us, God. May we be faithful to proclaim your truth. May we live it out in what we do and say, how we carry ourselves, God. May we also be faithful just to boldly proclaim it with words. God, we know that your truth is given to us in words, and Father, we pray that we will be bold and accurate and clear in proclaiming that truth wherever we go. Father, we know that your providential hand moves and guides us to where you want us to be. Help us to be faithful wherever you put us to proclaim the goodness of Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. You're dismissed.